You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed on their own, to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to look at your word. And I pray that... uh, If you don't uh, teach us, O Lord, if you don't instruct us, um, we won't be able to hear, we won't be able to see what you have here. So I pray that you would fill our hearts with faith. For those of us who trust in you, I pray our faith would grow as we see how great you are, how compassionate you are. And for those who don't yet uh, trust in you, O Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would stir up trust when they see that you are trustworthy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine, and maybe some of you don't even have to imagine, that you have moved away 
you live in a, a different place, uh, maybe in a different country, for a, a lengthy amount of time beyond sort of vacation, you know, a week or two. And one of the things that stands out to you after even just a little bit is how different things are. The languages are different, maybe. The food is different. The social customs are different. And it doesn't, it's not hard to quickly feel like you don't quite belong. You know, you're out of place. Everything's unfamiliar. And then imagine that you don't know when this time away from home will end. Perhaps you actually cannot even see that it will end. There's, there's no end in sight. And you just go on living and you try, to, you try to adapt, but perhaps it's not all that easy. This kind of experience is actually not very far off from what the Israelites, the people the Jews of this time, when Jesus is born here, would have experienced. Though what's odd is that they're actually in their homeland. But the way that they were experiencing it is that they were actually still sort of far from home while at home. Which may be even worse than being in a foreign land, hoping that one day you can go home, because then at least you have a solution. But imagine that you are living at home, but it does not feel like home. What's the solution then? And that is what the Jews were experiencing because they were living in their own land, but they were under the Romans who were ruling them and running their lives. For example, a Roman soldier who was traveling through your hometown perhaps uh, and who's carrying uh, his, all of his gear, could demand of any Jewish person that he wanted, he'd say, here, carry my luggage for me. And they'd have to carry it for him at least a mile. So you're at home, but you're not at home. You're waiting, waiting to go home. And that is what this Advent season is all about. It's Advent is us remembering, joining with God's people in the past and waiting, waiting for this exile to end and wondering how is it going to end with the hope that God has said that he's going to fix it, but you don't see very clearly how that is going to happen. And so this morning, as we look at Matthew, we're actually going to look at particularly Matthew 2.15. And Matthew 2.15, Matthew actually quotes from an Old Testament prophet, maybe not one of the most famous uh, books of the Bible, Hosea. And we're going to look at how this passage of Hosea is explaining how God is going to bring his people home. If you have these brown Bibles, uh, the passage that we'll be looking at is on page 757, Hosea chapter 11. So you can uh, get ready. We'll be spending a good bit of time there this morning. Because one of the things that we see throughout this passage in Matthew is he says regularly that God's word was fulfilled, was fulfilled somehow in Jesus. And to do this, 
What I would like to do, we'll look at three things. We're going to first and very quickly look at how this passage has echoes of Exodus, the book of Exodus, where God brought the big story where God brought his people home in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the pattern that Matthew sees which has an underlying principle to it, so a pattern and a principle, and then finally the purpose of it all, the purpose that God has had for humanity and how Jesus is going to fix that. So echoes, and then the pattern and the principle, and finally the purpose. So let's look at the echoes of the Exodus. So this passage is filled with, you may or may not be super familiar with the Bible, um, but this passage has so many echoes, reminders of the book of Exodus that if you have familiarity with it, it's almost like Matthew is thunking you on the head uh, with it. But what's interesting is that this is the only gospel of the four gospels that explicitly mentions Egypt. So it means that Matthew is actually really, really thunking us on the head and wanting us to think about Egypt and the Exodus. So let me describe to you in quick summary what happens early in the book of Exodus and see how it might actually sound like this passage that we just read in Matthew, okay? In the Exodus, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, feels threatened And he feels threatened by the people that he is oppressing, the Israelites who are in slavery. He's afraid because there's so many of them that they're threatening, he feels, his power and his rule. So what is the solution? Well, he has all the baby boys killed. Okay? But in that story in Exodus, a special baby in the midst of all this slaughter merciless slaughter is remarkably rescued. If you remember the story of Moses, right? The mom builds a little basket and sticks the baby in the Nile River only to be rescued and actually rescued by going into the very heart of Egypt, which is the palace, because it's Pharaoh's daughter that picks this baby up out of the water. And then that little baby turns out to be very special. That baby is going to be the instrument through whom God rescues all of his people. Okay? Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like what Matthew's talking about. Jesus looks like Moses. Okay? And he's going to rescue God's people. And God's people then are going to come out of Egypt through the water And they're going to go into a land, the land of Israel, that God has promised to them. So Jesus not only looks like Moses, but he actually also looks like Israel collectively. And that is, in fact, what Matthew says in verse uh, 2.15. He says that out of Egypt, I called my son. An oppressed people, an enslaved and mistreated people, is going to be brought into freedom by God. 
And that is, in fact, much like Jesus' own experience. He's born a Jew under the boot of the Romans. And then he has the experience of being a refugee at his earliest days of existence. From day one, he's running for his life and not allowed to be at home. And one of the things that this, I think, demonstrates is that nobody is out of the reach of God. Jesus knows the hardest experiences that anybody might have. Very much in contrast with our very nice nativity scenes that we all often look at these days, right? Everybody's smiling, you know, baby Jesus doesn't even cry. Uh, All the animals are nice, right? And there's no, like, nasty stuff on the floor, you know, he's not out in the uh, back barn, right? Um, It's all sanitized. But the actual original Christmas story, so to speak, is far from that. But here's one really fascinating thing about our passage, is that for all the echoes of Exodus, Matthew does not actually quote from the book of Exodus. He quotes from the book of Hosea. And why does he do that? Because he says that Hosea is fulfilled here in what Jesus is experiencing and what Jesus is doing. So now this brings us to the pattern and the principle. Now some people see this actually, this Matthew saying that the word of the Lord is fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. Now let's look real quick because it does seem like we have a problem. Hosea chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 say, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. That's what Hosea quotes. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Can you see what the problem might be? It's, it's not a prophecy, at least not the way we think about it. He's not saying that something's going to happen. He's actually looking back at Israel's past and being like, God was good to Israel, but they totally blew it. Now, we were actually set up to answer this question last week because Matt said that there's two types of prophecy, if you remember. Two types of prophecy. There's the prediction type of prophecy, which is mostly what we think of when we think of prophecy. We think of someone saying, on such and such a day, this will happen, right? God says, at this time, under these circumstances, I will do this. That's what we think of as prophecy. But actually, there's a second type of prophecy where God prepares his people for what he's going to do through patterns recurring patterns that he does again and again intentionally to prepare his people for when he's going to act ultimately. And that is the kind of prophecy that we have here with Hosea. So let's look at the pattern that Hosea and Matthew have in mind. The Exodus language is not only all over the place in Matthew, It's also all over the place in Hosea. They're both tracking on the Exodus imagery. So let's go back to Exodus for a moment. I'll read it to you. 
Exodus chapter 4. And this is the words that God gives to Moses to give to Pharaoh when he wants him to release his people. At Exodus, God says, Then you, Moses, shall say to Pharaoh, that great king, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So from the very beginning, when God wanted to rescue Israel, he referred to them as his son. And Hosea picks up on this, right? He has this exact same language in verse 11 of chapter 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then Matthew, quoting this, sees this pattern and then sees Jesus, right, as another type of son of God. But there's actually a larger pattern than just Jesus and Israel. There are a few people that get the title of son of God throughout the Bible, but there's one very key person that is also called the son of God. In Luke 3, 23 and 38, we get the genealogy of Jesus because Luke is thinking in similar lines as Matthew, but slightly differently. In Luke 3, he says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it goes through a bunch of people, right? He does a whole genealogy just like Matthew, but he goes further back than Matthew. Matthew stops at Abraham, and Luke goes and says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we've got another son of God. So what is the pattern? This is the big picture of the Bible. Adam is the first son of God. Israel is the second son of God, and Jesus is the son of God. So we have all three of these people, very important people in the biblical story, all paralleled. And Israel would have understood themselves as in doing, repeating Adam's story. Just a few examples. If you're familiar with Genesis, we've been going through Genesis all this last uh, few months. Adam is the first human. He's the first son of God. And God forms Adam out of dirt. And then he takes him from dirt, gives him life. And, and actually, what's interesting is he forms him out of dirt after he creates by parting waters. Israel also is going to be formed in the desert, which is pretty much if there's anything in the desert, it's dirt. There's nothing else. And they have also just gone through water. Waters parted. They went through the Red Sea. And God gives both Adam and Israel a beautiful place to live, a garden well watered with all sorts of great juicy tree, fruit trees. So both go from wilderness into the garden. And God makes a covenant with each of them. He binds these people, these sons to him, through a covenant. And he gives them a purpose, which we'll come to in a moment. But this covenant has a principle 
The covenant principle is this. Do this and you will live. Disobey this and you die. That's the principle. Do this and you will live. Disobey and you die. So let me read to you from Genesis chapter 2. We'll read about Adam. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to work the garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, that's, you see the principle there, right? You can eat all of these trees from all of them and you will live. And the tree of life in particular gives life. This tree you die. Now, Leviticus 18.5. This is now God talking to his second son, Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. God's rules give life. And if you read further in the, in the books of Moses, one of the things that becomes clear is if you don't do them, you die. So Israel, early on, as Moses is telling them all this stuff about what God has been doing from the very beginning, as they read Adam's story, they recognize that this is them. They are Adam number two. And Matthew sees this same pattern being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, one of the questions that comes, okay, well, so we see that there's this pattern developing and we'll see how it comes out with Jesus. But what's the point? What's the purpose of this? What were God's people? What were they supposed to do? Well, they had two things that they needed to do. Adam and Israel had the purpose of protecting God's garden place from evil and wickedness evil bad everything keep it good so adam was supposed to when the serpent shows up and says you know god's a liar adam should have just rang its neck or called god and said hey we've got a problem can we get rid of this guy pest control that's what he should have done. Israel also, as they are going into the promised land, are told, you are to get rid of all idolatry, all false worship. You are supposed to expel 
all of that evil from this garden country that I'm giving to you. So when Jesus shows up, it's not surprising, actually, that one of the things that Jesus does a lot of is he kicks the demons out. He goes around and he's constantly casting out demons. And he's healing people. He's getting rid of all the evil garbage that has come into the world and into the promised land, into the garden. And ultimately, they're supposed to obey God And their obedience is not only protecting what is good from what is evil, but they're also to worship and serve God in doing this. They're called to obey because obedience is necessary for life. Well, what happens with Adam and Eve? Well, they fail. They disobeyed. And what happens to them? Well, they get kicked out of the garden because they are now evil and corrupt. They get kicked out and then they die. They are exiled from that beautiful place, exiled from home, and they don't return. They die. What about Israel, the second, the second Adam? Do they do it? Listen to this. We just read what Moses is to say to Pharaoh. He says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Right? Israel is called to serve God and to worship him. Listen to what Hosea says. Hosea 11, verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them and led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. The picture here is that God is this incredibly tender father, right? I taught him to walk. That was was my son. I I helped him. He held my fingers and I taught him to walk. And when he fell down and scraped his knee, I put the band-aids on. There's this book that my mom used to read to us. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with it. It's called uh, I'll Love You Forever. Uh, Some of you may have read that. It's about, you know, this mom and her little baby And you watch the baby grow through all stages of life. And at every stage, you know, like when the baby's a toddler, you know, there's this picture of the baby kind of trashing the bathroom. And at each stage, kind of the child is slightly problematic, but there's always this kind of touching moment where the mom goes into the baby's bedroom and takes the baby and rocks the baby and says, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as you're living, my baby will be. It's the kind of book that's written for moms to cry, right? And to feel sentimental about their babies. And one of the things that's really touching in the book, and I actually thought I might cry if I told you the story, but I think I'm okay. Um, That the mom, when she's very, very old, she takes the ladder and drives across town and she puts it up against the wall of this house and she climbs into the window and gets her full-grown son out of bed and rocks him. It's really creepy if you think hard about it, but it's very touching when you think about the principle, right? 
Um, and then there's this great touching moment at the end of the book where the mom can no longer move, right? She's old and frail. And the son goes over and he picks her up and he rocks her. Now this is kind of like, okay. Uh, and he repeats the words that his mom has said to him ever since he was a little kid. And he rocks her and says, you know, as long as you're like, I'm living, my mom you'll be or something like that. You know, okay. Um, so it's really, uh, that's why the book was written, right? To make you cry. Um, and that is exactly, you read Hosea and that is exactly what you would think Israel should do, Right. God has loved this little kid for forever. But this kid is an awful kid. This is not the kid that's going to go over to the retirement home, right? And pick up dad and rock him, right? This is a kid that could care less if his dad was rotting in the retirement home or the hospital. This is a kid that no matter how much love the father lavishes on him, this kid is like, see you later, old man. You know, in fact, I don't care how much good you do for me. I don't even, I don't even acknowledge it. Beyond ungrateful brat, right? That is this kid. So this is what God asks in the book of Hosea. In chapter 6. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? Another name for Israel. What shall I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love. I wanted you to love me. I've loved you. And not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But get this. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there they dealt faithlessly with me. He's had two kids. Both of them turned their backs on him. And Israel did it for hundreds of years. God kept waiting, kept prompting them. So just as the consequences for Adam, he gets kicked out of the garden. And what about for Israel? They also will get kicked out of the garden. If you read the Old Testament story, Israel ends up getting taken outside of their homeland by the Assyrians. The exodus gets reversed. So God originally loved them and brought them out of slavery and oppression into a beautiful country, but they botched it. They did not obey, they did not serve, they did not worship, and so they get expelled. They're expelled from the garden. And Hosea, in our passage, chapter 11, verses 5 and 7, God says this. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, right? They're not going to Egypt. I've got a different place for them. Because they refused to return to me. The sword... Sorry, turn the page. The sword shall rage against their cities. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And if you read Hosea, there's all these references to Egypt and Israel being removed from the land, this beautiful land, and they get exiled. And that exile 
from the day of Hosea and just a little bit after persist all the way down to Jesus' day. They will be under the Assyrians. They will then be under the Babylonians. Then they will be under the Persians. Then they will be under the Greeks. And then finally, when Jesus shows up, they're under the Romans. They are no longer independent as a people. They're no longer free. They're always under somebody, some other king, some pagan ruler. And this is us. Because the story of Adam and the story of Israel is the story of every human. Israel is meant to be a picture. When we read about Israel, if you read the Bible and you look at Israel and you think, whoa, those guys are idiots. As you point the finger, you should realize that you are also that same idiot. Because this is the spiritual condition of every single human being. Israel represents us. And that's why, if when you really think about it, you feel far from home, no matter whether you live in your home country or not. Everybody is exiled from the garden. Everybody is exiled from God. Everybody is exiled from life. So if we're like Israel and we are like Adam... But Jesus is also like Adam and Israel. What's gonna, what, what does Jesus do? There is a difference, actually, fortunately. Because Jesus will obey. And after Israel, he is like the best kid God could have hoped for, Right? He's the perfect son. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan shows up, just like he did with Adam, and he is going to tempt Jesus. And here's one of the temptations. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. He will worship and he will serve only God. He's a faithful, loving son. And his obedience is what's going to rescue all the failed sons of God. And his obedience is going to mean becoming a refugee baby, vulnerable, and joining God's people in their exile. And Matthew sets it up so that we're expecting he's also going to be like Moses. He's going to rescue this whole mess. He's going to fix it. So Jesus' coming is an act of obedience. He doesn't fall for the temptation. He's faithful. But here's the other thing. Unlike Adam, and unlike Israel, Jesus' act of obedience is also the most mind-blowing act of compassion you can imagine. Because we, everybody in this room has probably done something nice for somebody that they didn't need to. And people in this room have also very likely gone through some hard stuff 
But a lot of the hard stuff, it wasn't that you picked it. It just happened to you because that's the world we live in. Whatever hardships, temptations, brutalities, traumas have been done to you, you didn't pick it. Jesus actually picked it. He didn't have to. He could have stood far off and let us wallow in our mess. But he actually picked to be a refugee baby. He picked to be a vulnerable baby at the hands of murderous men. He picked to live among us, people who are liars and deceivers and backstabbers, faithful, unfaithful sons. He picked it. Listen to what God says to Israel in Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 8 through 11. This is God, for all the trouble this kid has caused him, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I will not come in anger. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So Hosea sees that they're going to get kicked out of the garden. But he also sees that God is going to come find them. And he's going to bring them back home. This is the new exodus that Hosea sees, that Matthew sees in Jesus. Jesus being this special child like Moses, but also a child born like his people in exile under foreign rule. And Jesus not only chooses to come be among them, but his act of obedience he does not keep for himself. His act of obedience, he uses to rescue them. Now, here's the thing that is absolutely crazy. You've been waiting for a kid that would obey God, not disobey and die. And this kid, Jesus, the son of God, will obey God, but he's going to be the one who will die. He will use his obedience to actually rescue all those who are on track to die for their disobedience. In Christ, God has come down to once again be among his people, his people who have been exiled from him and from his land. And when Jesus shows up, the exile actually begins to end already because he's now with them. And there's other benefits that Jesus brings. And we'll look at that on Christmas Eve. 
But Jesus offers freedom and life. He offers the obedience that you couldn't offer to God. But there is one tragedy in this passage of Matthew. For as wonderful as all of the blessings are, if you read it and think about the Exodus in Hosea, you're like, this is what we've been waiting for. There's a major tragedy. God's people aren't ready. They are not ready. Who are the people that come to Jesus? Well, it's the foreigners. His own people, the king of his own people is the one who wants to kill him. Not as it was a foreigner back in Exodus, right? Things have been reversed. God's people are not ready to come out of exile. So one of the questions to ask ourselves this Advent season is, are you ready? Is this what you are looking for? Are you looking for this type of God and this type of rescue? And there's one thing that you must have if you are going to come to Jesus. And it's the first words that Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. You must, with Jesus, you must be poor in spirit. Because for those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize that they must be rescued, that they cannot get out of exile on their own, that they cannot be obedient on their own, you must be poor in spirit. And if you are poor in spirit, then yours is the kingdom of God, as Jesus promises. And that is what Christ offers. He brings the kingdom and he brings us out of exile because he is compassionate even upon the most resistant, disobedient children. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so compassionate. And I pray that your compassion would stir up in us thankfulness and faith. I pray that all of us here this morning would embrace Christ more. I pray that those of us who trust in Christ would really more deeply embrace him for his incredible compassion to us. For those who have not yet tasted of his compassion, O oh Lord, I pray that they would taste this morning and see that you are good and that they would embrace Jesus, that they would cling to Jesus and we would cling with all our might, O oh Lord, because apart from him we are completely lost and helpless. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our compassionate Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.